It's a great pleasure to, I was just interrupted by the information that this meeting is being recorded. Okay, um, yeah, great pleasure to welcome you to this joint event uh, between the Institute of the Americas and the Center on US Politics um, at UCL. And our overall title is Prospects for the Biden Presidency, Promise and Peril. So a lot of P's in there. And we've brought together four panelists who are each gonna spend 10 minutes or so reflecting on the new administration's early political approach, its opportunities, its challenges in relation to their own research specialisms. So I will briefly introduce them in the order that they're going to speak and then we'll get started. Okay, so the first speaker is Tom Packer who is a research fellow at the UCL's Institute of the Americas and is also an associate fellow at Oxford University's Rothermere American Institute. And Tom is a specialist on the history and politics of modern American conservatism. And he's gonna be talking this evening about party politics and polarization. And then our second speaker is Dr. Emma Long. Uh, Emma is a senior lecturer in American studies at the University of East Anglia, where she specializes in legal history and in church state relations. And this evening she'll be focusing primarily on judicial politics. Um, third, uh, we're pleased to welcome from the US, Professor Andy Rudelevich, who also has a UEA connection and is, I believe, a passionate supporter of Norwich City Football Club. <laughs> So along, no doubt, with everyone else at, at Bowdoin College. Um, so Andy is Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College and is a leading scholar of presidential power. And he'll be talking this evening about Joe Biden's executive actions to date and locating them in, in a wider institutional context. And then our fourth speaker is Dr. Julie Norman. Julie is a lecturer in politics and international relations at the Center on US Politics, where she specializes in US foreign policy, which will be her subject matter um, this evening. So four brief 10 minute presentations, and then we'll have plenty of time for Q&A. Um, Oscar, who is our IT Supremo, and who has been schooling me on how all of this works, says that the best way um, for us all to post our questions is via the chat function. So um, if you can post your questions on the chat function, then with luck, I will see them and I will respond in the, in the order that your, um, your questions are are posted. And the other piece of housekeeping business, um, it seems to me that everyone is already uh, muted, um, but that if, if you can keep your microphone muted um, and, until you're invited to ask your question, then that would be great. Okay, so delighted to welcome you all um, to, to this seminar. And let me now call on Tom Packer. Tom, over to you. Thank, thank you very much, Gareth. Thanks to all. Thanks to Oscar for organising it. And thanks for everyone honouring us with coming. 
So I am now, I'm still not entirely used to this, but uh, I am now supposedly sharing my um, PowerPoint. Um, so you should see party politics and party polarization, um, which I'm, uh, and so to go forward. So I'm, um, I'm going to talk about some points on the last few years and indeed the longer period of time. So in a sense, this is going to be a bit of an intro to what's going on at the moment rather than discussion of what's going on. Though, As Gareth and everyone who knows me knows, I'm very happy to have views on what's going on. So I'll be happy to deal with that in questions. Um, sorry. I appear to be having computer problems. Oh, right. Uh, it's always very embarrassing when this happens. Uh, never mind. I will stop sharing and do it from memory. So, um, so, um, I, so in terms of party polarization, there's been a massive um, discussion of the two parties. So I think it's worth getting um, things first. One is. America has two very dominant parties. So why is that? That is largely, ironically, because of the legacy of founding fathers who set up a constitution without any party, where they believed there wouldn't be any parties. In particular, the American president is very powerful. And as we're all very familiar from the last two elections, is elected by an electoral college. So essentially, America doesn't only have first past the post like the United Kingdom does, which, um, which means you have a tendency to have big parties, but small regional parties are also pretty pointless in the United States because they can't win the presidency. And the presidency is probably the most valuable single possession because you win the president by a few thousand votes in a few states like President Trump does, and you're just as much president as if you've won all but one state like Ronald Reagan did. So there's a natural tendency of two parties. And for the last 150 years, there have been um, the same two parties, Republicans and the Democrats. And they're very dominant, partly because of the Electoral College, partly because of the ways in which they are, have excluded other parties. So the United States is a country where it's very hard to run for office without being part of the, one of the two parties. This is a neglected aspect of US politics. But also very importantly, the two parties dominance is underpinned by something else, which is they're very easy to take over. So in a very real sense, you can talk about the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, but they're just named on a ballot. And the way those names are picked is through, um, through the vote of anyone who bothers to register as Republican or Democrat. And that's been overwhelmingly the case for about 40 years. So President Trump is, of course, a very good example of this. He'd barely been a member of the Republican Party. He'd never held elected office. He had no particular history of association. But he became their party nominee for president and the de facto party leader just by um, winning votes in primaries. But Bernie Sanders is another very good example of that. He's never run as a Democrat for elected office. He's always run as an independent or for a minor party. He's never been registered as a Democrat. And yet he was the runner up twice for the Democratic nomination. So, the, so American parties are very powerful, very hard to defeat, but also quite weak internally. They lack the structure. So Jeremy Corbyn winning Labour leader was this massive upset for the political establishment. But Jeremy Corbyn had been a Labour MP since 1983. Donald Trump had not been a Republican congressman since 1983. So the systems are very easy to take over. Similarly, 
Um, the two parties obviously changed a lot over the last 150 years. I'd say particularly the Democrats. The Republicans have been a bit more consistent, but both parties have changed quite a bit. But you could definitely see some continuities. So the, perhaps one of the strongest is the Republicans have tended to be the party of hyper-Americans, of American nationalism, of people who feel super-American, whether Harvard graduates in the 19th century or white Southerners today. While the Democrats have tended to be the party of of identities that are more cosmopolitan or more parochial, of identities that, ha that have tensions with broader American identity, whether it's the party of, um, whether it's white Southerners in the 19th century or Harvard graduates today, they're the, they're, they're, they were the party of one and they are the party of other. When we talk about party polarization, and I am gonna try and see if it works um, this time, um, the, um, let me just see if I can show one slide. Um, okay, it's not working, so I won't bother. Um, the, um, you can see this in the way that party polarization operates. The, um, the two parties have grown increasingly distinct since the 1970s. So if you look at voting in Congress, if you look at attitudes of different partisans, if you look at the degree of mutual loathing, that's, got, that's gone up massively. But one thing I think we should be careful not to think this is, is that the American political spectrum has ne necessarily gone broader. So a very good example of this is the issue of race, where obviously America is a divided country on race. And nowadays that mostly follows partisan lines. People who have more liberal or radical attitudes on race, uh, particularly at elite level, are Democrats. People who have more conservative um, tend to be, are, are overwhelmingly Republicans. You can see this at the elite level. That wasn't true in the 60s and 70s. In fact, in the 60s and 70s, the people who were most extreme white nationalists or most extreme black radicals both tended to be Democrats. But the political spectrum was actually broader. So in the 1970s, you had, you had perfectly respectable Democrats, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, who believed in segregation forever, who believed that government should be allowed to racially differentiate and prefer whites in a way that just doesn't exist nowadays. Nowadays, one Republican congressman, he arguably misstated, gave a comment which was seen as expressing any sympathy for white nationalism, and he was drummed out of the party, he lost all his committees, he lost renomination. So the political spec, while well, at the same time, you had people who were very powerful in the 60s and 70s, who were at least as radical as the more radical elements of Black Lives Matters today. So when we talk about polarization, I think it's important to contextualize what we're talking about. In many ways, I think what we're talking about is lining. The fact that right-wingers are now overwhelmingly in the Republican Party, left-wingers are overwhelmingly in the Democratic Party, and also that tends to be on every issue. So the abortion issue is another classic example of this. So nowadays, most Republicans are broadly on the pro-life side of the political debate. There are a few exceptions, Susan Collin of Maine, Lisa Moskowski of Alaska, maybe Shelley Moore Capito of Alaska, all of whom are among the very most left-wing Republicans in Congress. And the opposite is true of virtually every Democrat. The exceptions are Bob Casey, who's probably slightly on the right of the Democratic caucus, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is definitely on the right of the Democratic caucus, in fact, the right-wing edge. While in the early 70s, not only did you have many pro-choice Republicans, but you had pro-choice conservative Democrats like Harry Byrd of Virginia. You had pro-choice um, conservative Republicans like Malcolm Wallet, and you had pro-life liberal Democrats like Senator Hughes, of Iowa, who is extremely left-wing Democrat. Now, so does it really matter if the political spectrum hasn't got broader? And I think it does partly matter because it means identities get closer and closer entwined. So you can no, you no longer have a situation 
where people might be very strong liberals, but pro-lifers and think Ronald Reagan's a bad thing, but he's good in abortion. You're now in a situation where the two parties are huge elements of identity. So in the 50s, when people did election surveys, they couldn't believe it. Um, when, when Americans did elect, American scholars did election surveys in Italy, people would say, I don't want my kids marrying a communist, or I don't want uh, my kids marrying a socialist, or I don't want my kids marrying conservative. Now, half of Democrats and Republicans have exactly that view. They, they regret. And you've also seen the last few years another worrying trend, which is increasing enthusiasm for political violence. So both parties actually have gone up a lot to about 30% of the country um, now, but roughly the same for Republicans and Democrats, now say political violence could be justified. So how did Trump fall into this? Obviously he being the prequel to the Biden. And how does Joe Biden fit into this? So I think um, there are a few interesting aspects of that. So for Trump, I think he fits into it in a peculiar way in that I, I think this sort of speaks to it being lining necessarily. In many ways, this is an unpopular but nonetheless true view, he moves the Republican Party to the centre. You can see that more clearly if you just regard the right as what George W. Bush stood for. So the Republican Party is much less keen on preventative war than it was in the days of George W. Bush, and that is partly the Trump effect. But this was also how he took over. If you look at his votes in the Republican primary, they weren't the most conservative Republicans, but they weren't the most moderate Republicans. In fact, they cut across that division. The reason why he won was one issue where the two parties had not been clearly polarized, immigration. If you look at Trump supporters, and I have some stats on this PowerPoint, which is refusing to cooperate with the UCL Zoom for unknown reasons. The, um, you, 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 could, you could see this, but um, the voters who strongly opposed immigration were by far the most likely to support Trump. It was opposition to what one might call the Bush position on immigration, much more liberal, where the Republicans were well to the left of other countries in the English-speaking world, except for maybe the Canadian Conservatives. That led his drive to power. And Joe Biden also fits into this in an interesting way, because Joe Biden, throughout his career, has been in the center of the Democratic Party, how, wherever that center is. So a good example of this is abortion. In the 70s, he was I'm very iffy about abortion, I'm not sure, but you should definitely not have Roe versus Wade. There definitely shouldn't be a constitutional right. And he slowly moved to his current position where he's in favor of it, seems in basically all circumstances, and in favor of government's funding, um, which was a, his most least recent flip-flop as the Democrats continue to move to the left on that. But he's also always been a big figure who is keen on bipartisanship, keen on deals. And Joe Biden would not pretend to be a policy intellectual. This actually fits a lot of the political science that shows that lasting expansions in the American state have tended to be the result of bipartisan votes. The big exception is Obamacare. And even that has actually, I think it's going to be fair to say, had much less radical implications than the more bipartisan expansions to welfare states in the 60s and early 70s. And so, um, I suggest Joe Biden is in the mood long term to do deals and to try and fight this party polarization. But the problem for him is he has very small majorities in Congress. He's very lucky that President Trump's temper tantrum won him the Georgia Senate, so he's probably at least going to fill his administration. But unless he has a very good Congress in two years, I think he's going to struggle to move America significantly to the left because America is divided and Congress is divided and it's very hard with the best will in the world to push an agenda that doesn't have clear majority support. Thank you very much. I look forward to lots of questions. Fantastic, Tom. Thank you very much. And over to you, Emma.
Okay, thank you. I'm hoping that everybody can hear me. Okay, um, Tom's technical issues are, um, are coming this way as well. So uh, my incoming video has completely frozen. So I'm hoping the outgoing hasn't. Um, but nobody's interrupting me to say they can't hear me. So I'm going to take that as a good, uh, good sign. Um, so the courts. Um, <laughs> the the big battle, of course, is the the U.S. Supreme Court at the moment. Um, Democrats are angry. Right? They are angry at Trump and they are angry at Mitch McConnell uh, for what many of them see as Republicans having stolen the, the Supreme Court. Either uh, they, were, they were angry in 2016 when um, McConnell managed to uh, convince the, the Senate not to hold hearings on Merrick Garland um, for a record-breaking 240-something days, I think it, it was, uh, until after the, the election, um, arguing that uh, it was a democratic process, uh, that, that the people should have a, a, a right to, to have a say in who gets to, to nominate the, um, the next justice to the Supreme Court, uh, and then got even angrier in uh, 2020 when, in what seems to have been a complete U-turn, um, Republicans argued again that uh, the public should have a right to, uh, to have a say in who was appointed to the Supreme Court, but at the last election, not the one that was two months coming up. Um, so Democrats are, are angry. Um, they would, I think, be less angry if uh, Trump's appointees had not actually switched the balance on the Supreme Court. But the, the reality is that we've gone from a sort of five, four, moderate conservative um, balance to six, three in favor of uh, favor of conservatives. The problem for Biden um is that um the democratic party is effectively split um they're, they're all angry but what to do about that is um is going to risk dividing the um the democratic party and effectively biden is on one side but trying to walk a tightrope with the other so it's divided be between for for want of better terms i'm, I'm going to term the the institutionalists and the activists. Um, this is not a term you'll see anywhere else. I was just trying to find a way to, to categorize them. Um, but the, the activists are um, the group who basically said, have said uh, the Republican Party stole the Supreme Court. Um, they used underhand tactics to, uh, to get a conservative majority and we need to fight back and we need to fight back using the tactics that uh, that they that Republicans used uh, and we need to use whatever is at our disposal disposal and um, Chuck Schumer when um, it looked before uh, Amy Coney Barrett was appointed back in, in October um, when it looked like that was going to happen um said nothing is off the the table so um it's sort of that kind of approach we 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 need to act like we won is sort of the the approach we need to take back the the supreme court for the uh for the liberals um there's been a whole series of, of push uh pushes and um advocacy for this, open letters to, to Biden from advocacy groups, speeches by members of Congress and, and so on and so forth. The, the main thing that, that they seem to be pushing for 
I don't think it'll happen. But the, the big thing is, is that's on the agenda at the moment is packing the court. Uh, famously, of course, did really great things for uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s. Um, but suggestions about various ways of trying to enlarge the, the size of the, the Supreme Court to balance out um, the number of conservatives on the court with uh, new liberals appointed by, uh, by Biden. Um, that it's getting a lot of talk. Um, I don't think practically it will will get very far, despite the heat that it uh, that it generates. Um, that said, um, there are other other suggestions um, running around that are slightly less. Um, perhaps slightly less dramatic things like term limits for, for justices which is an argument that's gained a lot of traction actually in the the last few years uh even was being discussed even before trump came to, to office um and uh jurisdiction stripping which is effectively arguing that the congress should pass a law saying what the court should and shouldn't be able to to look at so effectively to withdraw certain issues from um from the the court's remit, uh, Congress has the the authority to be able to to do that, um, but it risks some of the same problems that that packing the court does. So this is the activists, right? The Republicans stole the the court. We need to take it back, um, and often talking about it in terms of the kinds of policies um, and the kinds of decisions that they, they would want to see made. So you often see it talked about in terms of Obamacare, in terms of LGBTQ rights, um, in terms of abortion, um, gun control, and, and so on in those kinds of, of issues. Um, if you like, the, the other side to that where, where Biden sits um, and people like Bernie Sanders and actually Ruth Bader Ginsburg before her, her death, the sort of institutionalists are effectively people who say, yes, the Republicans did terrible, did terrible things. They played politics with the court and they shouldn't have done. But if we play by the same tactics, we risk the legitimacy of the Supreme Court as an institution. We might in the short term get the results that we, we want, but in the long term, it will do damage to the court's ability to do its job within the system. Um, Biden has been very open about um, about that in a, an interview he gave before the election back in October to 60 Minutes. Um, when he was asked about packing the court, um, he sort of said it, it would turn the Supreme Court into just a political football. Whoever gets the most votes gets whatever they want. So he's really resistant to, to this. Um, John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, um, I think <laughs> would also be resistant to this, uh, not just because of the impact, the practical impact on his, his role. But I think uh, he's been one of the more outspoken members of the court about the court's institutional legitimacy. Um, and that that side of the, the issue. So what in the immediate future, um, Biden has uh, announced before the election and is in the process of following up on the, the promise that he made, which is to appoint a committee of experts, lawyers, academics, legal scholars, uh, practitioners, um, and, and others, um, a commission to consider uh, reforms to the, the Supreme Court. Uh, once it is appointed, he has said that it will have 180 days um, to, to come back with, um, with its, its recommendations. So effectively, it, it's not a, a question of sort of sending it off to a commission to die, basically. <laughs> um, that said, whatever, we don't know what the recommendations of that might be. But so he is following up on, on that. And I think, um, 
one of the advantages to doing that is because of this split in the Democratic Party. If you start trying to make changes now, that split is going to get in the way of, of the other uh, parts of his legislative program that he wants to, um, to put into effect. Appointing a commission pushes it temporarily to, to one side uh, while work is going on and sort of kicks the debate a little bit down the, the road. So politically savvy, I think. Uh, but it'll be interesting to, to see what the recommendations are. Um, I have a, a minute, so I just very briefly want to, to mention the other side, the other um, part of the federal court system that doesn't get talked about so much in terms of um, in, in terms of judicial politics, and that's the, the federal appeals courts. Um, Trump appointed uh, nearly a quarter of the federal appeals courts, and that's important because they act as a gateway to the US Supreme Court in terms of the kinds of cases that even get to the court uh, and the kinds of issues that the Supreme Court hears. Um, so ultimately, the current court could ensure more conservative um, rulings in practice simply by allowing lower court decisions to, to stand, um, which with slightly more conservative federal courts is a possibility. Um, so what seems to be happening is Biden is, and his team are focusing on the federal appeals courts where a number of appointments have opened up uh, and more are likely to, to do so. Um, so if we're talking about judicial politics, I think we want to keep an eye on the Supreme Court, certainly, but actually of, um, if not exactly equal importance, but worth paying attention to are uh, what's going on in the federal appeals courts and the number of appointments Biden can make there simply because decisions made there determine what is heard at the federal level. Uh, I think my time is up, so I will leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emma. And now over to you, Andy. Wonderful. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, from beautiful Brunswick, Maine, where it is uh, about to snow again on top of the snow we already have. Uh, I've seen uh, Facebook pictures from Norfolk, which suggests that people are wearing T-shirts, and I'm a little bitter about this. Uh, in any case, though, uh, it's wonderful to be uh, with my friends and colleagues. Uh, at least virtually in London, uh, and I hope to be with you in person sometime soon. Uh, let me see if I can make my technology do what it's supposed to do. That would be nice. Gareth, is that looking okay? Uh, yeah, looks fine. Oh. Okay, great. So I'm gonna be talking about executive action and I'm gonna do so in extremely rapid fashion. So please do come back with questions about any or all of this as I move through. Uh, more broadly, just to uh, build on something Tom said, Joe Biden comes in with a big agenda, but also with very small margins in Congress. Uh, just a handful of the things that he's talked about or will need to deal with, you know, range from climate change, obviously uh, the COVID response, uh, huge amounts of cash being talked about, uh, as well as broader systemic issues, racial justice and, uh, issues that are linked to that uh, directly or indirectly, immigration, and I would suggest domestic terrorism as well, as we saw on display uh, earlier in January. Uh, given those small margins in Congress, it comes as no surprise that Biden has already set off on a path of executive action in doing that. He is, of course, following in the footsteps of his predecessor, uh, a little less showily, I might say. He's a little less proud of his enormous signature than President Trump was. On the other hand, uh, all presidents have a real incentive to use 
executive action. And uh, because I've been watching a lot of crime drama during the pandemic, I've put this in terms of means, motive, and opportunity. And I'll take those in reverse order very quickly. Uh, opportunity is simply that the American government is big and the executive branch is a huge part of that. Since the New Deal in the 1930s, uh, if we were to extend that timeline back a little bit, it would be even a, even a sharper increase in federal employment. Uh, but as you can see, we go from basically nothing uh, pre-1930 to uh, around 3 million federal employees today. Now that's a number that's flattened more or less, but it's also a little bit misleading in that we have a uh, calculation of what Paul Light has called the true size of government, which includes uh, grant employees and contract employees. And a lot of federal work is done indirectly these days. Nonetheless, they can be considered part of the executive branch for the purpose of policymaking. You can see that number is not you know, two and a half million, but over 10 million by his calculation. So a very large executive establishment, uh, very large expectations of what the federal government will do, and therefore a lot of authority within the executive branch to shape policy. Now, why would they want to do that instead of the more permanent reforms that can be achieved through legislation? Well, effectively, because Congress doesn't do anything anymore, right? A tale of uh, two Congresses, uh, sort of, Look on the left-hand side, you can see 906 public laws passed, the right-hand bar, 908. Well, the left is the two years of what was called at the time the do-nothing Congress of 1947-1948. Harry Truman campaigned against how useless this Congress was. Uh, that right-hand bar, however, is three Congresses, six years, uh, 2011 to 16. That is the last six years of the Obama administration. Uh, and by the way, if we were to go to the Trump administration, things didn't pick up much there either. Uh, the 115th Congress, where you had unified government, did pass 300 plus laws, uh, but the 116th, again, with divided government, passed just over 100. And so the total for, again, those two Congresses is quite a lot less than the 80th Congress back in 1947-48, when more policy did move through the legislative process. And so, as Martha Durthick has put it, a lot of the activity of American policymaking is attempts not to pass new law, but to give old laws new meanings. And she was writing about the Clinton era efforts to get the FDA to regulate tobacco, uh, but that is even more true today. And so, if we turn to means, presidents have a lot of possible directives whereby they can attempt to shape how the executive branch implements policies. And these range for the sort of more famous directives of executive orders and proclamations. Uh, we're beginning to learn more about presidential memoranda, uh, less formal guidance documents, determination letters, national security directives, and then a whole nother category of policymaking in regulation and through the uh, Administrative Procedure Act, which I'll touch on, uh, but perhaps we can circle back to that in our Q&A session. So just to look at Biden, right? His first month has been hugely busy on this front. Uh, more than 50 executive actions, including some of the categories that I talked about. There are others that I haven't included here, including a recent determination about a national emergency. And so, you know, the number is more than 50, but even 50 uh, is a lot compared to the historical record. These are uh, presidents acting 
these are executive orders, I should specify, uh, of presidents in their first month, that top bar, Biden, at 28, was actually during his first two weeks in office. So got off to a, a very rapid start, uh, comparable to Franklin Roosevelt's month-long uh, issuance of executive orders in 1933. Uh, Biden, in his first month, got up to 32. So he is now the record holder, if you will. Uh, and arguably, his are more substantive than Roosevelt's. Here's an example of a typical Roosevelt executive order from 1933. Uh, we think of his executive orders as, you know, shutting down the banks and so forth. Well, an awful lot of them were things like this, designating subordinates to sign land patents. That's something that was required to be done by executive order at the time. Uh, the equivalent function is no longer uh, within the president's direct authority. So more importantly, perhaps, what do these orders do, right? What do these proclamations and memoranda actually do? Uh, for the purposes of alliteration, I've used the slightly inaccurate categories you can see on your screen. Revoke, review, regulate, reorganize, uh, and release, though by that I mean press release. Uh, revocation has been a big topic. A lot of Trump executive orders, proclamations, and uh, some of his guidance documents have been withdrawn, right? Even his withdrawals have been withdrawn uh, as in from the World Health Organization or from the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And this has been a, a main topic of uh, 11 executive orders by my count, three proclamations. Uh, again, a lot of orders and other directives have more than one purpose. So you'll see that these add up to more than the total I gave you, but nonetheless, uh, revocation has clearly been important to Biden, and as he even said on February 2nd, uh, responding to a New York Times uh, editorial complaining about all his executive actions, he said, well, I'm not making new law, I'm eliminating bad policy. That said, he does have an eye on making new law, or at least new executive policy. Uh, a lot of these executive orders deal with reviewing existing policy, reporting back, suggesting new change. So if you look at section two of this order, just quickly, you know, an immediate review of agency actions taken between January 20th, 2017, January 20th, 2021, that of course being the Trump term. And these are dealing with uh, environmental regulations in this particular order. But to go back and tell the agencies, look at these particular uh, policy initiatives, do we wanna keep them in place? Uh, the implied answer of course is no. But these aren't immediate. These are plans to make plans, if you will, and they will require longer term change or study or both. Uh, on the other hand, there is a subset of orders that act more or less immediately. They tell the executive branch to do certain things uh, relatively quickly or directly. His ethics order, for example, requiring his appointees to uh, make certain determinations about their conflicts of interest and to forswear future lobbying money. Uh, it would be one example. Here's another where if, again, you look at uh, Section 2, uh, the Secretary of Labor has been directed within two weeks, right? Not a study this and come back and tell me what you think about it, but within two weeks to issue new guidance to tell industry how to protect workers against COVID-19. Uh, the Trump administration had largely done the opposite, especially with regards to things like meatpacking plants and the like. Another important function of executive orders over time is to organize or reorganize uh, the way that presidents get advice. Here, uh, the president has created a COVID-19 response coordinator, 
a czar, if you will, to serve uh, within the White House and to have responsibility for a lot of oversight of the cabinet agencies. This is controversial, uh, though fairly common these days. Another example would be the creation of a task force, in this case, to reunify the families who are separated at the border uh, under President Trump's uh, implementation of so-called zero tolerance policies for immigrants. And then finally, uh, the notion of a press release, right? Executive orders partly are speaking to an audience Directly, they are speaking to federal employees, right? It's an executive order. It's not an order to the public. Nonetheless, they have developed a public relations aspect over time. President Trump really centered on that, I would argue. Uh, Biden has rolled that back somewhat, but nonetheless, uh, we have a lot of claims that don't have any legal status, but which are designed to serve as reassurance, explanation to the public, or perhaps to a specific interest group that President Biden cares about this issue, in this case, the climate crisis. Now, again, regulation could be its own topic. Uh, and rather than uh, spend that time now, I'll just note that regulation does require a longer term attention span. Uh, this is President Trump uh, with one of the uh, photo opportunities in which he delighted. Uh, most of that paper is blank, I'm told, but it's supposed to represent the 1960 Code of Federal Regulations versus the 20, I guess that would have been 2017 Code of Federal Regulations. Obviously, there is more regulation today. President Trump tried to roll it back. I think we can expect President Biden to roll back some of those rollbacks and to institute new regulations of his own. So just a few things to pay attention to would be uh, the way in which the Biden administration does regulatory review within the executive branch. Uh, President Trump stressed costs rather than benefits as a measure of evaluating regulation. Uh, President Biden will likely pay more attention to benefits rather than costs. Uh, court cases, uh, getting um, in line with what Emma had said, you know, court cases are very important to regulation and a lot are pending. A lot of people uh, in organizations and states sued the Trump administration over their regulatory efforts. Uh, some of those things are still in the courts and the Biden administration will have to decide how it wants to address that question. Uh, Congress can also have a say over regulation through the Congressional Review Act. It can cancel recent regulation within uh, 60 legislative days of its issuance. And with even slim Democratic majorities, it may be that some of the late breaking so-called midnight regulations from the Trump administration could be rolled back through the use of the Congressional Review Act rather than through the administrative process more broadly. Uh, and then finally, just worth noting, right, a lot of what Biden is doing is popular. And it's worth noting uh, George Edwards and his works on uh, presidential strategy. He has a, a series of works uh, that seek to look at how presidents can work with public opinion. Uh, he talks about facilitation uh, more than the persuasion that we often associate with the presidency, uh, thanks to Richard Neustadt's work uh, in 1960. Right? Facilitation suggests that if you're going to make change, you should do so within a popular a framework of popular approval. And so you know, some of Biden's executive actions, for example, uh, prohibiting workplace discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, 
have very wide support, more than four or five Americans and even three or five members of the Republican Party support that. Some are more controversial, uh, but if you sort of trickle down this list, you'll see that uh, you know even those on things like revoking the permit for the Keystone Pipeline, uh, which was a flashpoint both in the Obama and Trump administrations, you know, do have about 40% approval, but where those things track uh, Democratic and Republican identity, you know, that polarization could be problematic, where Biden is able to uh, sort of sail above partisanship, you'll have better luck in making these changes permanent. Uh, so just very generally, uh, you know, should we be concerned about these aspects of presidential power? Well, probably, broadly, it would be better if Congress did its job. Uh, Cato, an anti-federalist back in 1787, complained that the presidency as created in the Constitution could easily produce a Caesar, Caligula, Nero, or Domitian in America. Uh, and of course, the magic of Photoshop allows us to show that uh, every president has been pictured as just that, including new President Biden. People got off to a quick start here. But it is an important question for us to ask, right? To what degree do we want to rely on executive action and on what degree should we be pressing Congress to finally look after its own institutional interests and do its job? So I'll stop there and I appreciate uh, your questions and comments later. Thank you. Great, Andy, thank you very much. And among all your other attributes, you're the PowerPoint king, I would say. <laughs> um, although being anointed that by me is maybe not that much of an accolade. Anyway, over, over to you, Julie. Great, thank you very much, Gareth. Um, and thanks to Gareth and Oscar for organizing this and to um, Andy and Emma and Tom for their comments, just really great insights. I'm looking forward to the conversation afterwards. Uh, so I've been asked to speak about foreign policy uh, under the new Biden administration. And I think it's fair to say, as my colleagues have, have shown, that the main focus for Biden so far really has been on domestic issues first and foremost. But with that said, the administration has really already started taking action to develop a much more engaged and much more pragmatic foreign policy, not only in terms of policy, but in terms of approach. And also I think one that is really aiming to keep domestic concerns in mind throughout all of this. You know, first and foremost, Biden and his foreign policy team are just trying to shift the approach of international relations and mostly doing that by trying to restore some of these relations with allies. This will be the main pivot that I think we'll see. There were many who saw um, the Trump administration and Trump personally as having a perhaps open hostility to global institutions, a sort of um, bullying at times of allies from, from some perceptions. And so Biden and his team are really looking to re-embrace the sense of diplomacy and restore a sense of stability, if you will, to international relations. And we've seen this already out the gates with just recommitting to certain international institutions. As Andy mentioned, some of, uh, some of Biden's first moves were rejoining the Paris Climate Accord that became official last week, halting the withdrawal from the World Health Organization, and also quite notably last week, reaffirming US commitment and also appreciation of NATO. And that was really important for the Biden administration. 
Uh, the new Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, his very first phone call was to the Secretary General of NATO. Biden has been very vocal about re um, reiterating support for NATO and did so last week at, at the Munich Security Conference. So there's been a lot of this kind of talk, these kind of kind of announcements, and I think we'll see it in policy as well. You know, we will see a much more multilateral approach to issues that require a coordinated response, not just the obvious global ones like climate change or like the pandemic, but just in areas where there are areas of shared concern, whether it's China, Russia, Iran, Afghanistan. But I think it's important to note that Biden and US foreign policy won't be in strict lockstep with allies on all of these areas. There are differences, and I think really healthy differences among allies on some of these issues, somewhat small in the big scheme of things, but important, including on China and Russia with um, France and Germany in particular being a bit more open to Chinese engagement than the US is. And also even on NATO with France in particular, looking for a bit more autonomy for European security. And I think that might actually end up working to Biden's advantage, which, um, which, which we may see. So we'll see this shift in approach. In terms of specific issues, I think the big foreign policy issue throughout the administration's next four years will be China and how they choose to deal with that. But I think it'll be more of a shift in style than real shift in substance from what we saw under Trump. We can expect the Biden administration to maintain at least some kind of tough on China approach. Again, working with allies a bit more for more of a coordinated approach to do that, to put pressure on in strategic ways. But in general, um, even as Tom said, there's a lot of divisions in the US right now. One area where there is some bipartisan agreement is a need to maintain this toughness on China. And that's across the board from trade, technology, security, human rights. So this will be kind of an evolving, I think, long-term uh, kind of question and trying to feel out what this, this foreign policy will look like there. I think we'll see more of a notable shift in terms of Biden's engagement with Russia. It's important to note that Trump's State Department um, and Trump himself sometimes clashed on Russia and Trump's personal uh, defense um, support, if you will, for Putin sometimes complicated what his own State Department wanted to do. Biden has come out pretty forcefully from the start saying he personally will not kind of tolerate you know, things like cybersecurity hacks, um, some of the human rights concerns coming out of Russia regarding the Navalny detention. So he'll be much more willing to press Russia and Putin personally than we saw under Trump. But with that said, again, Biden, always the pragmatist, will look for you know, certain areas where there is room for cooperation. And one of his first foreign policy moves was actually re-signing the New START Treaty, which is the last remaining um, treaty for limiting nuclear warheads between Russia and the US. I think the next two issues that Biden will need to make some pretty quick decisions on are Iran and Afghanistan. We did hear last week pretty vocally from the administration that they are opening, they're open to restarting talks on the Iran nuclear deal. This is something that Biden campaigned on and we were somewhat expecting. The question now is what is going to be next in terms of moves on that front. Iran has signaled openness to re-engage in terms of the Iran nuclear agreement as well, but each side is kind of waiting for the other to go first. The U.S. is waiting for Iran to take some moves before they lift sanctions. Iran wants a lifting of sanctions before they make those moves. So we're kind of in a, a holding pattern right now on that. 
The other issue where Biden will need to make some quick decisions is on Afghanistan. Under the agreement that Trump negotiated between the US and the Taliban, US troops are set to withdraw completely from Afghanistan by May 1st. That would likely end the NATO mission there as well. Both US and international assessments suggest that that withdrawal could lead Afghanistan into civil war and also as a haven for the reconstitution of different terrorist groups. So Biden and his team right now are trying to figure out how to play that and quite honestly choosing from several bad options and trying to choose the, the least worst one. So across all these issues, I think one thing that'll be interesting to watch is probably a bit more of a blurring of lines between domestic policy and foreign policy than we've seen in some previous administrations. And that's, again, not just in terms of policy, but also just in terms of approach. I mean, Biden, shortly after the election, promised a what he called a foreign policy for the middle class, trying to focus on convincing Americans that what the U.S. is doing abroad pays off for working class Americans back home and doesn't leave them behind. And it'll be interesting to see if and how he does this, because... Americans on both the right and the left have become somewhat increasingly disillusioned with what you might say is unbridled globalization. And so I think Biden will be trying to find a sort of third way between the isolationism and America first of Trump and the Obama era globalization. He'll be kind of focusing on this build back better, trying to focus on American production while also working with allies and looking for mutual beneficial trade relations, but maybe not to the same degree that we would have seen in the past. I think this is a tough needle to thread politically, but Biden is probably better positioned than most to do this. His politics have always straddled working class interests and concerns with a more engaged and smart diplomacy. And he also has the personal relationships domestically and internationally that I think he can leverage to define an approach that's his own, but it'll yet to remain to be seen if he can do that. So thank you very much. And I think we all look forward to your questions. Great, thank you very much. In fact, we already have a sort of super abundance of questions in the chat. Um, so let's go through them in order. I guess I'll just read them out um, and then we'll see how far we get. But I'll have to ask um, my distinguished panelists to keep their answers reasonably, reasonably short or we, we won't even get through the ones that are up already. Which of course is a tribute to those four excellent presentations. Um, so Emma, you've already answered some in the chat. So we've had questions in the chat and answers in the chat. So I'm gonna scroll through those. And the first unanswered question I see is for Tom and it's from Anne Mork. Welcome, Anne. And um, is there a moderate anti-Trump grassroots movement in the GOP or has Trump dominated the grassroots level to the same degree as on the national level. So Tom, what do you think about that? I, I think a lot depends on dominance. Um, I'll try and stick off impeachment because I know there's another question on that in the back, in, in, in the chat. I think it's normal because the president appears in everyone's home. It's normal for people to identify very strongly with the president of their party. This happened with Bush, it happened with Obama and Trump is actually quite normal in that respect. Um, so I think his support has come very heavily from he's the Republican president. He's fighting for Republican things. He's the person we've heard of. He's the person liberals hate. Very like the sport for George W. Bush. 
I think what's slightly different is that le leadership of the Republican Party doesn't have much time for Trump. So I think the fact that Liz Cheney got re-elected by two to one after voting to have him impeached gives you some idea of just how low his behind the scenes support is in the US Congress. Um, and there's just a huge lack of respect. Like Matthew Glassman's written very good on this. He's not taken very seriously. He's particularly not taken seriously on policy. Like one absolutely supreme example of this was that they had these big budget and tax cut and nothing was done for his wall or anything on immigration whatsoever. His number one issue, they just ignored on the grounds it's Trump so we can roll him. And they were indeed right. So they were vindicated in that view. So I wouldn't, um, I would say grassroots support is much more for Trump, particularly the idea of uh, it's seen as much more unacceptable, things like impeaching him or removing him. I suspect if he tries to return for, to office, which I'm not at all convinced he will, in fact, I guess he wouldn't, you might find that support's a bit of mile wide and an inch deep with a lot of people. But once the argument's been made, so much of it is conservatives haven't had a reason to criticise Trump. If he actually, like, like Hillary Clinton, for example, is the nearest thing we've had to an incumbent trying to come back because of her links with Bill. And she started off a mile ahead, overwhelmingly supportive among Democrats. And lo and behold, she lost to a first term senator. And I, could, I, I think a lot of Trump support, which is a lot lower than the Clintons was, is a bit like that. So much stronger at grassroots level, very little respect among most Republican decision makers. I think lots of them feel Democrats are unfair and hysterical about him, but that's not the same as positive support. And I'm a bit skeptical how deep that popular support is, but strong enough and he's self-absorbed enough, people know if they shoot at him, he'll shoot back at them and he'll hurt them. So that means you get a lot of superficial treatment of respect, but he's not treated as a leader. He's not paid attention to. He's a very weak as presidents go was and is weak as ex-presidents go. Thank you very much, Tom. Um, so the next question I see, this is from Fernando Herrero. So welcome, Fernando. And this is a question about impeachment and what, what the recent vote on impeachment tells us. Does it tell us that the Republican Party is still Trump's party? So who, who wants to handle that? <laughs> well, Tom, you, you can if no one else does. Okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'd jump in just to say, I mean, Tom's earlier answer covered some of this ground as well, I think. And it's certainly true that local parties have been extremely vocal in their support of Trump. They've censured a number of the people uh, who were active in Washington in uh, supporting impeachment uh, or voting to convict. Uh, we've seen even in Maine, uh, Susan Collins uh, just got a letter from the Republican county chairs uh, telling her of their disappointment in her vote. Uh, didn't go as far as a formal censure. Um, mm. But it certainly, uh, yeah, I mean, to the degree that uh, the Trump wing of the party is able to manipulate uh, primary challenges and to actually produce votes on the ground, it will remain in power. I don't think there's a lot of sympathy in D.C., uh, but even there, right, Mitch McConnell uh, desperately trying to have it both ways uh, in the Trump impeachment trial, you know, voted to acquit. And nobody believes that he had a constitutional principle that undergirded that decision. So, you know, it's odd for him to vote, you know, that way. And then, of course, deliver a verbal condemnation of Trump that could have been given by one of the House impeachment managers. That's the kind of tightrope they're trying to walk. But, uh, you know, he just got reelected in the House where they're up again in two years. So you've seen pilgrimages to Mar-a-Lago already uh, by House leadership uh, to suck up to the president and to 
um, to kiss his newly retired ring. So we will see what happens there. But that, uh, you know, uh, I think the answer is yes, it is still enthralled to Trump, at least for the moment. I, I, I really do want to add something on that, which is just, I think opposing impeachment is a really low bar for being in thrall. Like, um, so Bill Clinton committed perjury. He committed perjury on a sexual harassment law, which was a democratic priority he himself had signed. And yet the overwhelming bulk of his party and almost all his party that wasn't conservative ideologically opposed impeaching him. And it's not clear Trump's been impeached for anything that broke the law. So, you know, that's, uh, so, you know, um, I, I, I think, yeah, it's definitely true what Andrew's just said. I just think there's a difference between not wanting to impeach someone and obeying them. Like, it's a very low level. And I think it shows how weak he is, to be honest, that so many Republicans have stuck out their necks and that the number three Republican in the House hasn't been removed from her leadership position when she's basically said, Trump is the worst president ever. We must impeach him and get rid of him. And two thirds of House Republicans had a secret ballot said, fine by me. Like, you know, if this happened to Joe Biden tomorrow, I think people would rightly be talking about how weak he was in his party. Um, yeah, but just really to go said, I just think it's partly where one draws the line. Can I just, Gareth, can I come back real quick? Um, yeah, just, sure. Just to say that you don't have to have broken a law in the criminal oh, yeah. statute to be impeached and removed from office. I do think sicking an armed mob on another branch of government probably is an impeachable offense. Well, like, so uh, that's not a very law. That the only person who was actually removed, who was forced out, was Nixon, who had clearly broken the law. And that, uh, and the fact it wasn't a serious crime for Clinton was a big. Okay, issue. Tom. Thanks. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on. Um, so, uh, Eldred Harrington, welcome to you too, and. Your question is about the, um, you know, to what degree is the success of Biden and Harris in office dependent on the outcome of um, the midterm elections of, of 2022, including um, down ballot races um, within within states? So who, who, who would like to respond to that question? I can uh, I can take a, an approach at least from a kind of the the court side of, of things. Please, um, yeah. In that you know, in in as far as concern is about the the Supreme Court and the federal courts. Of course, they they have to be appointed. Uh, they're they're nominated by the president and appointed by the the Senate. Um, and as we know from the the last years of the Obama administration, if um, if Republicans control the the Senate, uh, they are going to make that extremely difficult for the Biden administration, which is why a lot of the more activist Democrats are pushing Biden to to take action on this now before the midterms while they've still got at least the nominal majority um, in the, the Senate because there's no guarantee that after that they're going to be able to uh, to do anything even if um, even if vacancies come come up if there's a, a Republican majority so from from that sort of very specific angle um, the ability of, of Biden and the, the Democrats to, to have an impact on the judicial system in ways that um, are both um, productive and potentially dangerous. Some of the politics of, of this, I think, actually is, is a real risk to the court as an institution. But their ability to do either, I think, actually um, does rest to some extent on, the, uh, on those midterms. Thank you, Emma. Just, just quickly, any, any of our other panelists have anything to, to add? I just yeah. To yeah, Andy. 
just to note that this is why it mattered that the 2020 elections down ballot did not go as strongly democratically as uh, as predicted or hoped for. Um, you know, cutting into the House margin means that the normal House loss for the president's party in a midterm election, we even have a law of midterm loss, right, uh, means that there's very, very fine margins here. And now you can predict perhaps that 2022 will be an odd year. You know, we should have, you know, all else going well, right? An economic boom in 2021, at least coming back to where we were looking at before. So maybe the law of midterm loss will be suspended as it has been in a couple of occasions uh, in recent years. But, you know, again, the margins are very small and uh, going to Emma's point, uh, you know, this is one reason that if you're on left-wing Twitter, people are basically begging Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court to retire, uh, you know, tomorrow. And I saw that was that question came up in the chat already, but something that there's a lot of pressure from the left wing here to push um, judges, elderly and otherwise, frankly, anybody over 45 is considered elderly from this perspective, um, you know, to move away so that Biden can move people through. On the other hand, you know, every nomination takes floor time and he also has a big legislative agenda. So, you know, you have, again, these difficult uh, cross pressures going on. Andy, has Breyer responded to that suggestion? Uh, not publicly, to my knowledge. Emma may know, follow this more closely, but uh, there is some word that he might retire in the summer when the current term is done. That would be the most natural time. Okay. I, I, I like completely agree. I also think Andy's point that Congress can block executive orders is also very important to the Republicans in Congress. So um, the, another hope for the Democrats in the midterms is usually they've lost their majorities for ideological overreach, and arguably they have such pathetic numbers they won't be able to ideologically overreach. One interesting thing if the Republicans do sweep in is you might get some entitlement reform, because Biden has a long history of backing reductions in benefits as part of an agreed settlement, and that might be the only way he can get any of his priorities for a Republican Congress, like Trump and, to a lesser degree, Obama weren't really interested in that. So there's a weird thing that if the Republicans win Congress, he might succeed in getting some policies, but they might be quite right of center policies. <laughs> so yeah, it's absolutely central what happens in Congress domestically. As Julie was rightly saying, they're a lot closer on foreign policy. So I think he has more room to maneuver in that, even if he loses the, the Congress. Okay, thank you all. So, um, Marie Halland, nice to hear from you, Marie, and she wants to know whether it's likely that there'll be a split within the Republican Party, whether Republicans who haven't embraced Trump might, might decide to form their own party, and whoever wants to have a go at this, can you, we'll have to move pretty quickly, yeah? So, a quick, quick answer. Yeah, I, I, I think very unlikely just aren't enough Republicans who haven't embraced Trump, at least in a major way. And it's just a fundamental law of US politics. But unless you're trying to be a spoiler, there's no point in having a third party because you can't win. What you do is you take over an existing party. So if Trump won the nomination after a very vicious battle, maybe you get some of that. I think that's unlikely. And I think you'll see some of these anti-Trump Republicans becoming Democrats and others moving back in the mainstream. And I think you can already see that both things happening already. So I just think they'll go away once Trump is no longer a figure, either by becoming Democrats or by becoming fairly normal Republicans again. Great, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, so Julie, I don't know if you've already seen this uh, question from John Mason. Hi, John, um, about how much pressure there might be on Biden to appear tough in foreign policy and what effect that might have on his conduct of international relations. 
Yeah, well, again, with Biden, his his focus is going to be domestically and foreign policy wise. He won't want to appear weak, but he's not going to be looking to pick fights or, or escalate any kind of uh, confrontations either. And the thing with Biden, he's just been in Washington for so long that I think whatever image he might have had as a tough man, like it's gone through so many iterations. And even during the Obama administration, Biden was actually the one who was resisting sending more troops to Afghanistan and to Iraq and was actually more in favor of the withdrawal. So if anything, he finds himself in the opposite position right now, where in the past he really pushed for the full withdrawal and now he finds himself probably going to need to, to keep troops in Afghanistan, for example. So again, to me, Biden is someone who, um, you know, whatever his faults, he is someone who tends to kind of evolve and, and, and work to the moment. And I think he's just going to um, do what he thinks just needs to be done right now and not worry so much about the tough man image or the weak man image and uh, rely a lot on, on his team to help him make some of these calls. He, he luckily has very close relationships with his secretary of defense, with Austin, um, as well as with Secretary uh, with um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and I think his team is one that, again, is going to be looking for pretty pragmatic responses to these, and not so much looking to, um, you know, reassert U.S. military might around while still obviously supporting troops quite vocally. I'm thinking it would be quite nice to hear the voices of our questioners rather than just have me read out there their questions. And I see that our next one is from someone who has already been mentioned by Andy, and that is George Edwards. So George, you're, are you broadcasting from Texas? And I, I hope if so, that you're not sitting freezing in, in a cold, dark room somewhere in Texas, but can you unmute your microphone and talk to us? George. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, uh, Hi. I'm not actually uh, that George that was on the slide earlier. It was just you. Oh, I saw that. I was warm anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead, George. Go ahead with your question. Oh, um, I was just asking, there was a similar question about um, could there be a split in the Republican Party, but um, with those who didn't embrace Trump, could they make a push for a more center ground of the Republican Party or a slight rebranding of their image? Julie? Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is what uh, what's playing out now to see if that center can uh, can hold and can be strong enough. But honestly, the the latest polls have really just shown the opposite. Um, polls from the weekend showed that if Trump um, tried to form his own party, that nearly half the GOP would go with him and, and leave the Republican Party. So if anything, we see kind of a flip. Um, we see, uh, again, the latest polls show that 59% of Republicans want Trump to have a leading role in the party, which is um, about 20, 20 points up from what it was shortly after the Capitol riot. So if anything, Trump is, is gaining traction in the party right now rather than losing it. Um, it's notable that the Republican Party has lost members since January 6th. So I think that's more what you'll see is some people like leaving the party, but, but not in, in any kind of massive numbers to, to shift elections necessarily. Um, so again, you'll see this push from McConnell, other kind of institutionalists, but um, as has been said before, at the grassroots level, as well as the national, Trump still um, is still quite strong and, and is, is gaining strength other than losing it. Interesting, if you look at party ID, um, 
but um, that hasn't really gone down either. So um, I, 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 I think, again, I think I also would wary of saying the most anti-Trump Republicans, some of the ones who've left the Republican Party, like William Crystal, are probably nowadays very much on the left of Trump. But quite a lot of the people who dislike Trump most within the Republican Party are people like Ben Sass, who are actually well on the right of the Republican Party, but loathe him for his, or, you know, what you might call his secular morals and ethos. So um, within the Republican Party is not necessarily the case, the most right wing or the most pro-Trump. It's a bit more complicated than that, but which is one reason they struggled to stop him, because you have people opposing Trump as being too left wing and too right wing. And they found it hard to create a stop Trump coalition as a result. Okay, so a couple more questions for you, Julie, and then I'll, and then I'll try and give you a little bit of a break. Um, so um, let's see. Uh, Will Curtin, do you want to ask your question? Yes. So thank you very much um, for this. Is for Julie. Um, you mentioned um, how Biden will will face new challenges against Russia and China and Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, however, I want, what I want to know is what would be next for Biden and indeed the United States allies on the somewhat intertwined or very much intertwined issues of Venezuela and Cuba and how will his, how will his approach differ from that of Donald Trump? Yeah, great. Thanks a lot for that question, William. So as, as people probably know, Obama tried to sort of thaw relations between the US and Cuba. Trump reversed a lot of those efforts. Right now, it's going to be really tricky for Biden. <clears throat> I think what he'll try and do is change some policies that will actually make a difference for, um, for Cuban citizens, for kind of civil society. The policy um, indication we've heard so far is that he will increase the amount of remittances that um, Cuban Americans can send back to Cuba because that was actually kind of hurting people on the ground to have that capped under Trump. And we'll also probably push to have um, a restoration of more travel back and forth between the US and Cuba. But it's going to be a really fine line to walk for any kind of engagement with the Cuban government. And especially, as you noted, the fact that the Cuban government has now shown support for, um, for, for Maduro and for the Venezuelan government, which Biden and his foreign policy team have done exactly the opposite. So again, I think they'll look for wiggle room where they can for these more um, kind of people popular based places for exchange and engagement. But at the government level, it's not going to be something they can push um, just pragmatically. And also there's no Republican support for it and even um, very split among Democrats for moving in that direction as well. So that's a great question. Very interesting, Julie. Thank you. Um, Thomas Giff, you've got the mic. Thank you very much, Gareth, and thanks for a terrific event so far. I did have a question for Julie, which is whether there's a disconnect between uh, what Biden was proposing in his presidential run and how he's actually governing so far. We've seen a $1.9 trillion stimulus package, which is being pushed through Congress absent Republican support. He's also proposed most sweeping immigration package in the US in decades. Um, so I'm just wondering how, if, if this is kind of consistent with his promise to govern from the center. Yeah, so a good question. And I think one that, that a lot of people are asking and, and we're certainly hearing a lot in the United States right now from, uh, from many. And I, I would say a couple of things with this. One, Biden has a sort of dual challenge of holding the Democrats together and bridging that gap there as well as the bipartisan gap. And so what I see him doing with some of this legislation is 
putting out pretty bold proposals that he knows aren't going to go through fully, but nods to a lot of progressive concerns and gives him a lot of room to compromise. Um, the immigration bill probably being a good example of that, a, a thorny issue, even at, at the best of times, but one that I think he knows he's not going to get the full pathways to citizenship and whatnot, but might get something for dreamers. Um, I think this is his approach, but it's one that surely is seen as maybe alienating some who, who expected more of a, a governing from the center. But I think the other thing to remember is this is for Biden, it wasn't always just about policies coming from the center, but the way that policies were going to be debated and discussed. And a lot of his calls for unity were not so much policies that were going to appeal to everyone across the country, but being able to debate those policies in a way that was much more civil than what we had seen under, under Trump. Um, but again, I think, I do think he has to be cautious. There's been a lot of talk of Biden sort of learning the lessons of the Obama administration and kind of going big. I think he does need to be careful of not overlearning those lessons and expending all his political capital on say the stimulus package and not having anything left to actually get some bipartisan support for say the infrastructure bill or the immigration bill. Thank you very much, Julie. Andy. Well, just to, I, I would endorse what Julie just said, but also note that, uh, you know, Joe Biden has been at the middle of the Democratic Party for 50 years, but where that is has shifted. Uh, that's shifted left. And uh, so he is uh, trying to do this almost sort of two level game where he appeals to uh, Democrats across the spectrum while trying to get at least a modicum of bipartisanship. But if you look at the polling on the policies, they're actually quite popular. You know, Donald Trump managed to make immigration really popular in the United States. Uh, COVID relief money is popular. Yeah. Relief for state and local government is popular. Um, you know, infrastructure money, and he's talking about $4 trillion, that's the entire size of the US budget, you know, is popular. Now, again, the, the devil will be in the details, but he had, you know, if what we mean by the center is something that people who, you know, believe that Antifa attacked the US Capitol and that the election was stolen by, you know, programmed voting machines, uh, you know, through the ghost of Hugo Chavez, that's not going to happen. He can't he can't appeal to that part of the Republican Party. And as we've already noted, that's an increasing uh, part of the Republican Party per se, but the wider public so far so good. And, uh, you know, his approach has been, you know, to appeal. This is actually a little bit of a test point even today where it looks like his nominee for the Office of Management and Budget will not get through uh, the Senate unless he really pushes hard. And I wonder if he will, right? This might be an area where he uh, backs off uh, and throws his critics uh, a victim, as it were, in order to get something else down the line. But his approach generally, yeah, has been to, you know, appeal to issues that had popularity, that uh, weren't pursued for whatever reason in the last number of years, um, but which, you know, could help him, um, you know, get a lot of cash into the pipeline, which presumably will help him politically as we look towards 2022 as well. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Um, so, David, you've got a question for for Tom. If, if I can successfully un unmute myself. You have. Uh, Tom, to ask how far in dealing with the Trump legacy and his impact on voters depend not on congressional uh, actors, but on state parties? And if so, where is this likely to come from? Where to um, watch? Yeah, um, so good question. I kind of suspect that 
you'll have a lot of impeachment is outrageous. Why aren't they throwing out congressmen who voted but supported Black Lives Matters? But there won't be much of an ideological legacy. And I feel we're going to basically have a second Tea Party moment where there will be a big movement away from the Trump presidency as having been too left wing and big government. There will be a huge backlash as and, you know, everyone who was just saying, pointing out, you're talking about unprecedented side expanses in spending. And the Republican Party will focus very heavily on that and the battle against Bidenism. Just to link it tiny bit to the previous question, I think it is worth noting Joe Biden did run on most of this. Like partly as Annie's point, he's in the center of the Democratic Party, not its hard right. But also he was sort of very lucky that Trump made such noise that he could actually take some very liberal positions without the whole campaign being focused on them, which is of course the campaign Trump should have run and would have been re-elected if he had. Um, and, I, um, and I do think some of the polling is a bit squirrely, which is I think, one reason why I'd be interested to see what happens to the state parties. I definitely think we're in a really high spending moment. You're seeing that throughout the Western world, like in the COVID era, you could just spend like, I'd say a drunken sailor, but it's more like a drunken whale. But um, I do think on some of this social stuff, it's a bit different. Like are people going to be in favor of having no biological tests for, um, for women's sport? Are, is there going to be enthusiasm for ending deportations? Biden's already trying to U-turn a bit on that. And my feeling is the polling is a bit too, are you in favour of this very broad general idea without going into the details? And the details will cause some problems. But I think Biden is partly going on the basis he doesn't have a majority, so it's not going to happen. Lots of this is going to happen anyway. So hopefully it won't be that unpopular because it won't happen. And I think that's not an unreasonable assessment. <laughs> Thanks, David. Very good question as always. It's really good to see you. <laughs> John Bryant, you have a question. Are you out there? Right. John, if you can hear me now, yes, I can. Yes, yes. Um, I basically want to find out from your panelists, whoever wants to ask answer this, is that given that um, the control by the Democrats of the Senate is quite tenuous, <laughs> uh, what would represent good progress for the Biden presidency by the twenty twenty two midterms? So, Emma, do you want to go first? Okay. Um, I mean, not necessarily linking to the the court but the the stimulus package right at the moment that that's that's the key thing getting elements of that through all of it or possibly parts of uh, parts of it um i think it is going to be key as far as the the courts are concerned it it's sort of reactive um because you need people to stand down to be able to appoint people in that um and his point earlier about um, about Breyer, the pressure on Breyer to stand down, which is not that dissimilar to the pressure that was on Ginsburg when Obama got elected in uh, 2012 and then again in 2016. Um, it wouldn't surprise me for Breyer to take the same response as Ginsburg, which is I'll retire when I'm good and ready. Thank you very much. Um, but he might, you know, he might look at what happened with, with Ginsburg and decide that, that maybe it's worth it. Or he may decide that he doesn't fancy another four years in perpetual dissent basically so there, there may be other reasons for him to to step down uh but lower courts as well i mean there, there are seemingly coming out of the woodwork an awful lot of clinton era um appointees and actually some from the george hw bush era as well who are looking to to take senior status which reduces their workload and then sort of opens up positions for biden so i would say getting um getting those nominations made and appointed uh, given the problems that obama 
had uh, getting um, the the positions that open up, getting people appointed to them would, I think, be considered uh, progress from uh, from that point of view. Great. Anyone else have anything quickly to jump in there, sort of midterm goals? I would just say very quickly, I think spending lots of money, he, we, we've seen how keen Congress is and there's nothing that unites Democrats more than spending lots of money on favoured constituencies and to a certain degree, members of Congress in general. So I think though the Republicans have to look at their primary electorate. So I think spending, he could potentially achieve a lot, particularly if it's short-term spending. On regulatory changes, I think frankly, if he achieves anything, he'll have done well. So if he can get the jury, I, I think it's very much, particularly if you think as most people do, the Republicans will improve in the midterms. It's very much the most moment to say okay we're going to take dreamers okay we're going to have a gay rights act with lots of exemptions for religious groups because if you don't given the makeup of the senate sedates there's every chance you won't have another bite at the cherry for a decade so and i suspect that's the kind of thing joe biden who's always been a kind of take a half a loaf kind of man understands so i think you'll probably get quite he'll make some efforts to have painful compromises on those elements yeah just to say um, in terms of regulation right if he can tee up uh, a big COVID bill and a perhaps an infrastructure bill, you know, lots of cash being put out there, but also a lot of authority given to the executive branch under those kinds of measures. And therefore, you know, worst case after 2022, he'll have a lot of legal authority sort of left over from those laws to begin to shape the implementation of them in ways that will be helpful uh, to him and he hopes to the country, but to him politically, which is our question. Can I abuse my privilege and ask you a quick question, Andy? And that is, um, I'd be interested to know when Congress stopped doing anything. Um, you mentioned Martha Durfick and her very last publication, she said that the problem of American government was hyperlexis, like the opposite, that, that too, there were too, too many, I'm not sure how much of it was too many laws or how much of it was too many regulations, but that would have been an essay she would have written about 2013, 2014. Um, do you see these problems as relatively recent or is there a long secular trend that's just kind of reached right. critical mass now? Well, I mean, and I don't necessarily, I mean, I, I, I already did this, so I'm guilty of it, but you don't necessarily want to say productivity equals the number of enacted laws either. Uh, but yeah, her point was you almost had, um, you know, there's so much stuff in the code of federal regulations and in the US code that actually it gives presidents more power. They can go back and look for stuff. Uh, and of course, different administrations can disagree uh, rather vehemently on what a given law allows them to do, right? The Obama Justice Department thought that DACA, right? Protecting the dreamers was perfectly legal and the uh, Trump Justice Department said, nope, absolutely unconstitutional. So there's going to be arguments there that elevates the roles of the courts, something else that Martha Durthick was very concerned about, right? That we're giving the courts actually too much power over policy because of the unwillingness of the elected branches to come to consensus about the direction in which policy should move. Uh, so yeah, I mean, Congress, I, we, we could actually, you know, spend another hour talking about war powers and sort of move back and forth. Fine with policy. me, let's do it. The whole <laughs> aspect of unilateralism we haven't really discussed except in, uh, by implication. So, you know, there's a, there is a lot there, but I think that the, uh, the syndrome she talked about, you know, effectively sort of left the president with a lot of authority and then Congress has backed away from making decisions, from polarization, from, you know, there's some good reasons or some bad reasons for why it's done this. I would say mostly bad, uh, but they have, you know, not really exercised their own institutional prerogatives in a whole lot of areas, 
even when presidents uh, have acted in ways that they, members of Congress, claim to dislike. So when did they stop doing stuff? I would say 1981, actually, but we can, we can argue about that. I, I, really I, interesting. I, I, I was just wondering, like, this, I think it's such an obvious follow-up, Andy. Don't you think the new 6-3 conservative majority of the court is going to, like, massively weaken the degree of, like, power of presidents, perhaps if you want to be cynical, particularly liberal democratic presidents, to push these laws in those directions. So the story might even be of declining executive power under Biden as the court starts ruling. You can't do this. You can't do that. This is delegation gone wild. Well, let me divide that into two pieces, though. On the one hand, you know, these conservative jurists have been brought up in this uh, notion of a unitary executive, right? And they are their fundamental um, profession of faith is to a strong presidency, especially in areas of, you know, foreign powers. Uh, so I think the interesting question, I think this is what you were actually talking about is non-delegation doctrine and whether Congress is allowed to delegate this much power to the president over time. Yeah, That's very clear about doing it or something in a way. They yeah. Have. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Congress passes vague laws very frequently for good reasons and bad. And they, you know, It'll be interesting to see whether their ability to effectively delegate, you know, the authority to write the details into regulation rather than to the statute in the first place actually carries over. I am skeptical. I know there are members of the court who are eager to do that, who think that the Schechter case in 1935 was the correct ruling uh, with regards to any kind of delegation. Um, but you know, I, I don't know that they'll have majority, if only in practical terms. Congress doesn't want to do that work. I'm not sure it's capable of doing that work. Um, so the upshot would be, I suspect, even less legislation. Maybe that would be the ultimate point from a conservative point of view. But uh, I'm not sure. I think we will see tinkering with non-delegation and with uh, what's allowed there. But I suspect not a reigning in unless Congress does it itself. Right, great. The clock is is against us, but I think we've got time for one more. Um, John Newham, I think your question may be best directed at Julie. Hello. Yes, please. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. You can. Right. Uh, Julie, my question is this. Um, how might Joe Biden approach the uh, problem of North Korea with or without Chinese cooperation or whatever sort? Great. Thank you. Um, so what we expect is that Biden will go back to more of a traditional U.S. foreign policy approach with North Korea, which is more of an incrementalist approach, focusing on what's called like denuclearization. So essentially trying to offer um, small incentives, like small scale sanctions relief, what have you, um, to try and contain North Korea's nuclear uh, um, uh, transcendency, if you will. And um, that's, that was pretty typical pre-Trump and Trump kind of changed that a bit. Um, Biden is expected to go, to go back to that. And it's one that has worked in the past. Um, North Korea seems to want the engagement, but really isn't looking to push much, much beyond that. And so that seemed to work for containment so far. Um, I'll just briefly answer the question below that as well, just because it's a similar answer. I, I see um, in terms of Israel-Palestine, which is an area that I work on quite closely, kind of a similar, like just return to the norm. Um, Biden is a pretty, um, pretty standard Democrat in terms of support for Israel, but also support for the peace process. And so in terms of both North Korea, Israel-Palestine, kind of some other of these issues that are just kind of always out there, we'll just see more of a, a return to, to business as usual with US foreign policy on those. Thank you very much, Julie. Um, can I thank 
all, all four panelists for really good little presentations that I learned a heck of a lot from. I'm sure we all did too. And thanks for your answers to the questions and thanks to the questioners as well. And uh, it, it's great that we were able to share this, this, uh, this time and this, this space together. And I hope you all enjoyed it too. And I hope there are other such opportunities and that maybe, who knows, maybe in the future at some point we'll even get to be together in person miracle for an miracle. event of that kind. So it, <laughs> it seemed, would be an incredible privilege at this point. But this was a privilege too. And so um, I guess we'll all, we'll all panelists, I will say thank you to you. Can we all give a sort of clap or virtual clap to, to our panelists? And uh, goodbye, goodbye everyone. In fact. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Goodbye, take care. Of London, legends, ceremonies, and celebrations, past and present. <laughs>